Hi there, this is your host Emily from Simon Podcast. What you just heard are the birds of Sherwood Gardens in the north of Baltimore City. During the pandemic, it has become more difficult to hang out indoors, and if you're like me, you may have found yourself spending more times outdoor in the nature. Fortunately for us, there are many delightful parks and gardens around the Baltimore City. The Sherwood Gardens is definitely one of my favorites. It is a historical garden taken care of by the Guilford community, and visiting each spring for its phenomenal tulip display has been a Baltimore tradition for over a century. In this episode, I had the great pleasure to chat with our local historian and garden enthusiast Andrew, who has an amazing amount of knowledge when it comes to our beloved local gardens, especially the tulips. Bulb is actually a modified stem. Did you know that? This is Anne diving into some fascinating tulip biology already. It's asexual reproduction, and it's this very specialized kind of situation where you have all of this this food basically for the tulip that's going to emerge from the bulb. And there are specific phases for a tulip. It actually needs cold dormancy. It needs to go through. A freeze. You plant it in Baltimore in September or October. That's your planting time before the ground freezes and gets cold. In November, it is starting to form its roots. So these little roots start to come out of the bulb. So we think that we just put it in the ground and nothing's happening, but so much is going on underneath the ground. And then it needs a cool period. It actually needs the coldness of our winter to grow. And then after the cool period, there's a growing period, right? Again, we we aren't really we aren't really seeing it. It's all happening underneath the ground, and then it starts to come up. And then there's the bloom cycle, right? So we have this period where it's in bloom. That's the part that we are seeing, but it doesn't end there. In Sherwood Gardens, we then dig up the bulbs and prepare the beds for. Summer flowers, and then in the fall we again replant. We do this because we plant bulbs of the same type, and we want them to emerge each spring in a uniform size and color. And sometimes, if you leave certain bulbs in, they'll get smaller, they'll change their color, they'll just get a little wonky. But if you leave them in, they start to go through two more cycles. So the first of those cycles is it regenerates. After the bloom, the bulb kind of goes through a process where it's regenerating itself, and then it multiplies. So, in some cases, bulbs will multiply. So, as you probably know, our tulip bulbs today, which in many cases are coming from the Netherlands, actually originated in the mountains of Central Asia, and it was well the Ottoman Empire at the time. Um, part of what is Turkey today that really popularized and began to cultivate these, and we know that they were being cultivated probably a thousand years ago. But they started out as a wildflower, right? So of course they can reproduce and create more. Otherwise, we wouldn't have them at all. And so it was really in the 1600s when these bulbs made their way to Europe. And of course now the Netherlands is a major、um, grower of. Bulbs, and that is where the bulbs in Sherwood Gardens come from. By the way, they come from these Dutch fields, as so many of our bulbs in this country do. 
May 10th of 1940, Germany invaded the Netherlands. So by this point, visiting Sherwood Gardens had become very popular. But at this point, we could no longer get Dutch bulbs. The Dutch tulip bulb fields were destroyed, and the Dutch people had a very difficult time during the occupation under Germany. Some of them were starving and, in fact, ate portions of their bulbs to survive. I do not, by the way, recommend doing that at home. Part of a tulip bulb is toxic. When the war was over in the spring of 1946, Baltimore once again was able to enjoy a springtime display of Dutch bulbs. And John Sherwood doubled his orders from previous years. My own theory is that he was doing that to get his Dutch suppliers back on their feet. They really were in bad shape. And in fact, they would come over to, to visit Sherwood Gardens and see how the display garden was doing. Um, I'm not sure if you know this, but there are certain tulip bulbs and even daffodils that made their American debut here in Baltimore City in Sherwood Gardens. There are bulbs that are very common in bulb catalogs today that first appeared in North America in Sherwood Gardens. I mean, Trocadero is a daffodil that gold medal, for instance, is another daffodil. You, Everyone has Trocadero and, and gold medal, and those had their American debut here. Um, white Triumphator is a uh, example of a white tulip bulb that made its American debut here. But um, so that's a long story, the science of the tulip bulb. So you need the cold, you need the warmth. So it's the warmth that starts to trigger that bloom. And then the flower opens. What happens in Baltimore is we have a beautiful spring. Spring is just one of our great seasons here in Baltimore. But if you have a hot day, boom, there they go. So you have to kind of time your visits. It's not it's not like in the UK where you can have an expanded spring, right? They have this cool, wet, long spring. Nope, we have it. It's glorious. It's gone. So get it while you can. <laughs> oh no, it's August already. But Anne says we haven't completely missed out. There's more to show gardens than just the tulips. Um, but even in the winter, um, what people forget is that Sherwood Gardens is um, also a heavily wooded park. And so just, just the trees, just the trees are a wonderful, a wonderful draw. It's a nice green, quiet space in a heavily built urban environment. People come from all over on their lunch breaks just to get a little bit of a reprieve. And that's what it's for. That's beautiful. I was also wondering, so since we have all these beautiful trees and flowers, what animals do we attract to the Sherwood Gardens? So this is a very interesting question. Um, one of the things a lot of people have been talking about right now, um, overbuilding, pressure on the environment, environmental changes. Um, in the Roland Park Company District, one of the interesting things that we're seeing, and, and I can tell you that things really have changed. I mean, I, I grew up here in 1975 until now. When I was a child, it was a fun thing to see a, a rabbit. We didn't see a lot of rabbits. Today, we have rabbits and fox everywhere. They're just part of the landscape. We have birds of prey, um, lots and lots of owls lots of other large birds of prey that are hunting here. We have not just an occasional deer, we have herds of deer 
that live in the area now. You can see a herd of deer going down Roland Avenue, which, as you know, is four lanes of traffic moving in, you know, two and two. And that is not a really great place for herd of deer, but um, you really see them everywhere. And one of the things that has happened is the additional buildings since I was a child in Baltimore County has eroded where they can live. And they have followed the waterways into basically this part of Baltimore City. You can see them right off of Charles Street. Um, Johns Hopkins University owns the Evergreen campus. You can see them there. You can see them on the private school campuses, Gilman, uh, Bren Mawr School. You can see them. And they, of course, will wander. We, we never, ever had an issue with deer eating anything in the city. And now you will every now and then realize that a deer has come and has eaten something down to the, the ground. But there are lots and lots of animals. There are raccoons. Um, raccoons in Baltimore City do tend to be an unhealthy population. Rabies is fairly rampant. Um, so unfortunately, when raccoons are found you know, by a homeowner, they're, they're often removed and, and they are euthanized. But there are lots and lots of raccoons in the environment. Possum, very, very, very common. Um, we have a healthy bat population and we have lots and lots of birds. So um, one of the interesting things, uh, the Guilford community had its centennial year. So they were celebrating their milestone 100 years. Um, a few years ago, we had the Baltimore Bird Club come in and do a bird survey. We had never had one done. And it was fascinating. They found quite a bit more than they anticipated. And one of the interesting things they found was yes, they found, you know, the barred owl that's here all the time. And they found you know, in the in the spring, you have these migratory birds, these wonderful warblers all come in. So for a couple of weeks, you can just hear all of their lovely songs before they pass on. And of course they settle in these areas where there's the tree canopy. So um, as they're passing through, they they kind of target places that are more comfortable for them, the more wooded areas. And that really speaks to why it's so important to have large green spaces, even inside an urban environment. But there's, there's been a lot of research over the last you know, decade or two, but increasingly more and more attention is being paid to trees. And we've learned a ton about trees, both above ground and below ground. So above ground, we've learned that not all trees are the same. So we've learned that 20 trees planted along a busy street is not the same as 20 trees planted together in a mixed generational communal setting in a parkland. What is happening is the trees in the wooded parkland are able to create a canopy and that canopy can sustain an enormous variety of animal life, especially, but not limited to birds. It includes bats, it includes squirrels, other, other animals and organisms. So that cannot be reproduced as well by planting the same tree in a tree well X number of feet apart. We have learned something else. We have learned that there's something else going on below ground when you plant trees together. I don't know if you ever listened to, the New York Times has a podcast and it's called The Daily. 
And in December of 2020, they did this amazing one. A guy named um, Ferris Jaber wrote it. And it was called The Social Life of Forests. And it explored what we've learned about what is going on between trees underneath the ground. They don't entirely understand how it is happening, but the trees are definitely working together in some way. It isn't clear if that is tree directed, in other words, if they've evolved to interact in this way or if it's fungal community that, because they have a rich biodiversity underneath the ground. But for instance, when you have a community of trees and an older tree is getting ready to die, it releases its carbon stores to the younger trees around it. Older trees seem to also serve in a protective way for the younger tree population when it comes to disease. So this is very interesting, but of course, because of course, when you look at a lot of American woodland, all the trees are the same age. They've clear cut, planted new trees. It means you do not have older trees, middle-aged trees, and baby trees. It means you have one generation and there's no protection. So it really lets us understand, okay, we've been doing everything wrong. You know, they would say, well, we're going to have a tree and it's going to die, so we may as well take it down. If you take it down, it's not able to go through that end of life cycle where it's releasing that carbon. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but what's interesting is in Europe, you can hardly find an ancient tree. They have woodlands, but they're all the same age. Then you go to the UK and they hardly have any woodlands at all. But you'll find one ancient tree in the center of an empty field. And really, neither of those situations is the ideal. It's kind of like we know that elephants are social animals and they need to live in groups with a variety of ages, that that they have these relationships with one another. And to be healthy, they need to be in these multi-generational groups. It's starting to look like trees need the same thing. What Anne said was so fascinating, and it reminded me of how often we see in the city small trees planted along sidewalks in an effort to make our city more green, which is wonderful. But maybe there's something more we could do, given this knowledge about the social lives of trees. So trees are always wonderful because trees, we obviously all need to breathe. And trees are really important in terms of oxygen and in terms of keeping our, our planet healthy. But no, it doesn't seem to be an ideal living environment for a tree. A tree appears to be at least, you know, even if it isn't aware and we don't know, we don't really know exactly how all of this, the mechanisms are working, but trees appear to be as communal as human beings or elephants. Um, that the way they function together, it is more protective for them to be in multi-generational groups. Now, of course, you can't do that along a sidewalk, but it does really bring home the idea that we need more parkland. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I just remember when I was walking through the park, 
even though it's really hot summer day, I feel this cool breeze as I was walking through the park. And it's something that's really, really hard to replicate in a place that doesn't have a dense population of trees. And that's the canopy. That's, that's kind of the magic of the tree canopy. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about how having this greens, this canopy, help cool things down in summer? Well, it has to do, so there are a couple of things. Remember that when you are planting trees in a parkland, underneath you have grass, you have other plants as well. Everything is working as a system, right? When you take that and you look at trees being planted in tree wells, what are they surrounded with? Well, they're surrounded by concrete. Trees do help with the cooling, but you need a lot of them. And they need to touch. And the more we understand things, the more we realize they need to touch underneath the ground as well. So a parkland, a parkland is giving you all of the things that go with that, right? You, you're creating a, a, like a little microenvironment, all of its own. So um, yeah, so for instance, when you're walking in a heavily treed park, it's amazing how cool it makes you. I saw something interesting recently. Um, someone had a home, a, a modest, normal-sized family home, and he wanted to be able to cool his home so he created a system where he just had cords of some kind going from the ground where his garden was up to his roof line. And then he planted climbing vines on it. The whole side of the house, just climbing vines. And it was beautifully cool, even in a heat wave. And you see it, you see it, and you think, that's genius. Why, why haven't I thought of doing that? That is such a good idea. So I was wondering, what has our city tried in terms of using plants to make our city cooler, make the summer more bearable? So Baltimore City has an approach now as far as forestry, where when a tree looks like it's not doing great, they don't immediately rush to take it down. <laughs> For one, they have too many trees and they don't have a budget that allows them to. But secondly, the philosophy is we will take a tree down when it is well more than 50% dead and we think it is a hazard. So that's actually a very protective kind of approach to forestry. The idea is we are not going to rush to cut trees down. And when they do need to come down, let's come up with a plan for replanting those tree wells. So it's a very pro-tree kind of approach. One of the things that we know works better than others is planting trees in intergenerational groups, which takes time. So finding places where you could have a park and Sherwood Gardens is not that big. It's less than 10 acres. It does not need to be vast territory. It can be small. So finding a place that is not going to be paved, there isn't a single sidewalk in Sherwood Gardens. There there are no trash cans. There's, there's hardly a bench. I mean, there are very little thing. There's very little fabric in Sherwood Gardens. There is simply the softscape, right? There's the, there's the grass, there's the trees. 
And one of the interesting things I've noticed is that when people put in parks, they want to do more. They want to build because human beings are builders. They want fences and they want gates and they want walkways and they want drives and they want playgrounds. And before you know it, you have so much built material. You you don't really have what you really started out trying to get in the first place, which is trees and grasses and native flowers and native shrubs. So I think the focus ideally, not, not that children shouldn't have playgrounds and these other kinds of things, but, but we all need to breathe. Um, oxygen is important. And uh, the climate situation is obviously completely out of control. So um, planting, keeping in mind what works best for the plants themselves, i.e. the trees. So if you are aiming for intergenerational parks, it takes time. You need, instead of planting all of your trees at one time, you're planting them in waves every five to 10 years. It, it kind of takes some long-term thinking. Absolutely. Thank you, Anne, for coming to our show and teaching us about so many fascinating things about plants. I think we've all gained a little more appreciation for the green spaces in our city. If you enjoyed listening to Anne talking about the past and present of neighborhood and wanted to read more about it, I definitely do. She has written two books and we'll put the links in our show notes. If after listening to this episode, you wanted to go out and check out some beautiful gardens around Baltimore, we have some recommendations in our show notes. Also in our show notes are links to our socials. We're always looking for questions and suggestions for our future episodes. If you like what we do, we really appreciate if you could rate and review us and share it with your community. Thank you for listening. Take care.